Before we, I read the scripture, though, I want us to just look at this picture. I hope you can see it at home. What do you think is going on here? I just, I really like this picture. This guy who's obviously dressed nicely compared to this lady who's talking to him, saying things that maybe he's not enjoying. He's being somewhat devastated by her speech. And I found this on the internet. I hope I'm using it with license. I think I clicked all the buttons to make sure I'm all above board and legit. But I just want you to keep this picture in your mind because this picture is a good picture that illustrates something that Jesus was wanting to teach us about prayer. And so let's read this story together. And he, Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And he said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said to her, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will, give them, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will you join with me in prayer? Father, we need your help. God, we know that Jesus wants a praying people. Lord, I know that the one time in Jesus' life that we have recorded that he was violent, that he made that whip of cord in the temple and drove people out. He was upset that money changers were robbing you of a house of prayer. You want your people to be a people of prayer. And yet you also know that our tendency is to stop. And so God, I'm praying for a miracle. A miracle of grace in the heart of your people that you would be taking us from grace to grace and glory to glory in our prayer lives. Lord, you know that even as much as I love it when I'm with you in prayer, I often am uh, resistant to going to be with you. And so, Lord, I need this, and I know we all need this. And so, God, would you please take us from glory to glory in Christ as prayers, as prayer warriors, as effective prayers of people who worship with you in prayer, as people who commune with you in prayer, as people who please you in prayer, as people who see the kingdom come because of prayer. And that you would do all of this for your name's sake and for our rich, deep heart joy and satisfaction in Christ. And all God's people, especially those who are in their house and the Holy Spirit is listening, said, Amen. 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 I'm just trying to help you participate, folks. All right. So, this parable, Luke tells us, was here to address a problem. And the problem was this. We lose heart prayer. And this is one of these little parables, um, the rare parables where 
the gospel writer helps us out by telling us what Jesus meant before we get started. The gospels are full of tons of parables, but we are usually having to figure out what they mean for ourselves, which can lead to some disagreements and can lead to some misinterpretations. But Luke didn't want us to mess this one up, so he tells us right off the bat, what was Jesus trying to do with this parable? And the point was that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. And so reading that and knowing that the king of glory and the best leader who ever led and the best discipler who ever discipled looked into the hearts of the people of God in his time and knew that they often stopped praying and the root issue was that it was because they lost heart, he told them this story. So this story is medicine for weak and average people like you and me who love Jesus and want to follow Jesus but have these faltering and failing hearts. Amen? Is anybody here, can they look back over 2020 and say, I prayed as much as I ought to have and I have no prayer regrets and I totally can fulfill what Jesus is aiming for here. I never stopped praying, nor did I lose heart. Hey, if you're that person, um, I want you to contact me in the next week. We're going to get you involved in our prayer and fasting time. And you know what? There are some people at this church that I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was you. But I know for most people, Jesus's diagnosis of regular Christian life rings true. We're not always praying We regularly lose heart. And so he tells us this story. And so my desire today is that by kind of working through this story, we would be lifting up our souls to have the medicine have effect. This isn't some crazy vaccine that we're still figuring out how effective it is. You know, they've done the trial run, supposed to be good, but we're still figuring this out. This is pure effective medicine from the God who knows how to love, save, transform, and rescue sinners. As we believe. And this is our part. Whenever it comes time to study and hear the word of God, our part always is to bring our faith to the table, expecting that the Holy Spirit of God will make this effective as God wants it to. So what's going on with this story? This story that is intended to help us not lose heart, but to always be praying. And I think, I just want to say, my diagnosis here is that Jesus' story here is meant to address a, a belief that we can sometimes have that we don't notice we have, that we think wrongly about God and therefore we stop praying. I think that's what's going on. Jesus is diagnosing, saying the reason you stop praying is because you think things about God that aren't true. And you're responding to a God that doesn't exist. And that's why you stop praying. So let's look at the story a little bit. So there's these two characters, and I'll even go back to the beginning here to get this picture back up here again. There are these two characters. There's this judge. So it's a kind of ruler. And again, if you know your Bible at all, you know sometimes a judge really does mean someone who just sits in a court decreeing laws. And sometimes they have a bigger um, uh, role in a community. They might be a community leader who does judging. They might sometimes have to be a military leader. The book of Judges, those guys are more warlords than lawyers. Um, But this person is a community leader who people will bring their complaints to in order for him to bring a resolution to it legally. That's legally binding um, for this person. This is this person's role. And this person is described as 
not fearing God and not caring about men. So when they look up to heaven, they just, I don't, I don't care what God thinks about what I'm doing. I'm going to do what I want. And when they look at the crowd, they think, I don't care what you guys want. I'm going to do what I want. They're kind of this typical, um, stereotypical politician that, that you could think is in politics just for themselves. Like when a sociopath gets themselves elected. I'm not saying all politicians are like that, but there is this kind of just-for-themselves leader of people that are just there to be like, you want me to do something for you? Where's the kickbacks? You need to grease the wheels, grease the palms. This is that guy. He doesn't care about right and wrong. He doesn't care about coming under God's judgment. He doesn't care about loving God and expressing his love by trying to be just like God is just. And he doesn't care about people. He's not trying to make anybody besides himself happy. So this is your worst case scenario of trying to get something from someone. That's the setup. And then there's this widow. And the widow is here because she is meant to be the least likely to be able to manipulate the situation kind of person. She doesn't have a husband who's probably got lots of money. She hasn't been remarried. She um, would have maybe less political clout in some societies, maybe in Israel, where they tried to resist that kind of stuff, but maybe it just happened. She's maybe a forgettable person. Um, She's not physically intimidating, so this widow probably can't just threaten to meet the judge outside and make him regret not helping. You know, this is the reason. Jesus picked somebody who everyone would kind of know can't make things happen just because they want to make things happen. This, this isn't an Elon Musk. This isn't a Jeff Bezos who can just phone people up and be like, yeah, if you do what I want, there's going to be a suitcase full of unmarked bills in the back of your trunk before the business day's over tomorrow. And if you don't do what I want, everybody who's running against you is getting a billion dollars to, to get rid of you. Like, this is not this person. This is the least powerful person politically who needs some justice. And they don't tell us what the, the issue is, that she's got an adversary, because that's not the point. They're trying, Jesus is trying to paint the picture of someone who is not going to get listened to. A judge who does not give a rip and a person who can't make anything happen. But, Jesus says, this person is persistent. There's an email every morning at this person's desk, and there's an emailing right before they go email right before they go home every day. And somehow she found out his home phone number. So there's a phone call left on the answering machine every time he gets home, and and he's got personal text messages. Plus his assistants getting text messages. Plus you know this lady is showing up on his doorstep, and sometimes outside the gate she's kind of rattling the gates in the middle of the night, and gets out with a bullhorn in the middle of the night and says, "I need your help still." And she's her only power is to be presently persistent. And she's so doggedly determined that this person, this judge says, 
Though I neither fear God nor respect man, you know, I don't know if he would have talked to himself like this, but saying, you know, even though I don't care, but this woman is bothering me. This woman is wearing me down. I didn't get into corrupt, self-centered politics just to have this wrinkly old face show up on my doorstep every day and ruin my, my I'm supposed to be walking, I'm, I'm heading out to my yacht this afternoon and here she is lying on the ground in front of my car so I can't get to my yacht with my yacht babes. She's, she's ruining his selfishness. And there's something in him that's starting to realize that this woman is so crazy desperate, she might attack me because she thinks she doesn't care about herself anymore. He's like, she might come to me, and if I say no one more time, I might go home with all these like old lady claw marks down my face. And I'm sorry for the, the description, but this I'm just fleshing out the picture, just fleshing out the story. And so he finally says, fine, you, you, fine, I'll give you your justice. Just finally leave me alone. And now this is one of these stories that Jesus tells. And the point isn't, God is a selfish self-centered, doesn't care about you, doesn't care about people, doesn't want care about justice kind of God. But if you just annoy him, you might get what you want. The point is, your heavenly father is so completely opposite to this evil judge How could we let ourselves get discouraged bringing our requests to him? Unless, deep down, we think he is like that judge. And we feel defeated by not getting what we ask for 16 seconds after we've asked for it. Does that make sense? There's a logic here. Jesus is trying to get at, at, at something. He's saying, even if God were as bad as sometimes you're afraid he might be, persistence can still get stuff out of him. So why aren't you, you might be able to still get stuff out. Even the worst people in the world, you can wear down until they send you away. But if you knew and if you know that in Christ you have a generous, attentive, righteous, willing to act Father in heaven, how come we lose heart so much? Or how come you lose heart so much? That's the question that needs answering. And I think it is a fair question. When we stop praying, isn't it always because we think God won't act, but we can go to something that will solve the problem more quickly, whether it's Amazon or a person or sin or something like that? Isn't, for many of us, most of the time, the reason we fall into prayerless is because we think we're on our own and we have to take care of it ourselves and we have to take care of ourselves ourselves and God probably won't answer anyway because there was that time I was asking for a while and nothing happened that I saw and so I kind of just quit because obviously he doesn't care. 
Maybe that's not you. Maybe it is. And so Jesus is calling us, problem number one, to really look our hearts in the face, so to speak, and say deep down, do I think that I'm more likely to get what I need from something besides the Father? And so that's why I don't go to him. And even if I go to him, it's only a slim chance he's going to respond. Jesus says, if that's really what's going on inside of us, if that's really our motivation, we do not yet know the Father through Christ as we ought to. Jesus' description is this. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? And these are these questions that both deserve a no. If we are the chosen elect of God, of course he cares about justice in this life for us. If we'll cry out to him day and night, if we'll persevere in our prayer. And of course he's not sluggardly of course he doesn't delay of course he doesn't lose our requests you know our prayers to god aren't like when you get when you work in an office and you get back from holidays and you've got 500 emails and 300 text messages and somebody was telling jokes on your board game whatsapp community and so you've got 16,000 little meaningless ones, but there's like two meaningful ones in the midst of the 16,000. That's not what hearing prayer like is for God, where he's busy, flustered, cluttered, overwhelmed, and, and having a hard time hearing us. Jesus is telling us that when God has reached into human history and through the resurrection of his son has bought a sinner for himself, has taken somebody who's says no, no, no to God and is functionally a child of the devil because of his heart commitments and his slavery to sin and through the blood of Christ has forgiven them and through the resurrection has given them a new life and has by faith put the name of Father over them and called them his child. How is it even conceivable to think that believing prayer could be anything but treasure to God? That when we take the time to really turn to God, whether it's in the moment or making time to go be with him or in a group prayer time, that God's heart could be anything besides, I sent my son to die to buy these moments of believing prayer. Then we don't know him as we ought to yet. I think that's what's going on in this parable. Maybe we disagree, but this is what makes sense to me. How does Jesus get us to want to be convinced that we ought always to pray and never lose heart? Even, like, even Delilah managed to convince Samson to kill himself with persistent nagging. It's crazy. You ever think about that? We, you can nag somebody to death. Wives, careful. 
Like, it's happened before in history. You can nag somebody to death. How much more so a God who never blinks and never sleeps and never stops watching each one of his children. He knows how many hairs are on your head. There's probably about 50 or 60 less than when you brushed your hair this morning. But he numbers every hair on your head and he's named every stars and he sees every single moment of our lives with fatherly love and compassion. How could we let ourselves get discouraged in prayer? That's what Jesus is working on. But, there's a but. There's a, there's a but. No, before we get to the but. So this is what I think we ought to do. If you're with us last week, I ended the sermon by advocating strongly that each one of us ought to be looking for a promise or two to hold on to through this year. A scripture that promises God's, what God's will is for our life because Peter says that God's divine power has enabled us for all things for life and godliness. And I feel like I just butchered that, so I'm going to go and not rely on my memory for this one. This was last week. Second Peter. Dad, use the GPS. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who's called us to his own glory and excellence, but which he's granted us his precious and very great promises so that through them we may become partakers of his divine nature. We read this last week. And boiling it down to a simpler sentence, essentially what he said is, God gives us everything we need for life and godliness in this life, and we lay access to it through believing with faith his promises. And so I last week, I want to bring in last week, it's really easy to forget last week's messages. I, I do it all the time. Don't ever say to me, remember that thing you said last month? I don't, but you can remind me. Last week, we learned that God wants to change your life through you believing in his promises. And so as we're talking about growing in constant believing prayer, one of the responses we can have right away is, I can never change. Even if I do believe that God is that good, and even if I don't want to believe that God is that bad, I can't change. And so let's go back to last week and remember the power for change so that you access divine power to have everything you need for life and godliness comes from laying hold of a promise of God and taking him at his word. So just for, for whatever reason, we can go to Mark chapter 11 and we can glean from this story a promise of God's help for prayer from this story. You might remember this story. Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's his final week. Um, it could be me, but it seems like the closer and closer Jesus got to his crucifixion, the more and more kind of sharp his discipleship was as his days with his disciples became shorter and shorter. And he's going to this fig tree on the way to the temple, and there's no fruit on the fig tree. And Jesus curses it because he wanted fruit from the fig tree. And symbolically, it was a sign that Jesus wanted fruit from the temple. He wanted to come to the temple of God and the hour appointed. And he was expecting prayer and he was expecting faith and he was expecting worship because they said they were waiting for the Messiah. And now that the Messiah is showing up, they just want to kill him. And so it's coming to this bare and fruitless tree. And so he curses the tree to die. And it's a symbolic picture of how the temple is going to be destroyed in 30 years or 40 years after Jesus' ministry.
But he curses it. And they come back. And it says this. This is Mark 11, verse 20. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus said to him, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Okay, there's a promise from God. It's pretty amazing. I love this story. It's kind of like, like seriously, if we were walking, we went for a walk one day and and I tripped over a tree root or something like that. Maybe we're in Sandy Lands, and I'm just like, stupid tree, die in the name of God. And then we, we circle back, you know, we find some, can't finish the route as a, as a circle. So we come back and the tree is just like blackened and dead and the leaves are all down, even though it's a late spring. You'd be like, do you see what you just did? Bah! And imagine I just did nothing. I was just like, that's nothing. It's like if you went up to Michael Jordan and he was bouncing a basketball and you were just like, oh, I can't believe it. You push the ball down and it comes back into your hand. Bah, you're amazing. Michael Jordan would be like, that is basic basketball. Watch, it, like, haven't you ever seen the picture of me like this, jumping from the free throw line? <laughs> He's like, that's hard basketball. Three rings, four rings. How many rings did you get? Six rings. That's hard basketball. Dribbling is not hard basketball. And that's Jesus' response. He cursed the fig tree, died. Everyone's like, look at that. And you're like, this is nothing prayer. You could get a mountain into the water if you, if you really believed. If you knew what you were dealing with when you went to your prayer closet, if you knew the power of God for people who will persist in believing prayer, you would not be impressed by a dead tree. That's Jesus' response. And so to grow in this... This is the truth about Jesus. Jesus talks about answered prayer in a way that makes us all think he's, he's over-promised. Whatever you ask for in your prayer closet, you'll get if you believe. We, we all think, yeah, you're not really serious, because I've prayed before. Amen? Now, the point I'm making right now is the, the issue might just be that we're not fully functioning in the divine power of God because we haven't trained our souls to trust in the promises of God when we go to the prayer closet. And it might be time to actually make our prayer closet a time that starts off by meditating on the promises of God so that our hearts are in a good believing place before we... um... Has anybody here, here ever found themselves in the habit of just kind of worrying in God's presence? You just go to pray, and you're just like, I'm worried about this, I'm worried about this, I'm worried about this. You've abandoned me, and I'm going to help you when you show up. I don't think that's the kind of prayer that moves mountains. And that's what Jesus is talking about with this thing. Hey, even if God were as evil as we think he is sometimes, he would answer if we're really persistent. But he's not evil. He's a good father. Which leads us to promise. that, And so that's problem number one, is that we are sometimes taken out by our wrong thoughts about God in prayer. But also there's problems number two. There we go. Sometimes we do make it hard for God to answer our prayers. Jesus says this right at the end. 
after saying that God will speedily give justice to them, he says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Nevertheless, when I show up, am I going to find a world that's actually believing in prayer? When I show up, am I going to show up into a, a situation where people are expecting me to show up? Is this like the road to Emmaus where I can sneak into people walking away? Remember the story at the end of the Luke? Jesus has been crucified. He's raised from the dead. And people are telling them, Jesus is raised from the dead, but they don't believe it. Their hearts are hardened by sorrow. So they're walking away from Jerusalem, walking away from the other disciples. They're going home. They're all sad. Jesus shows up to them. They don't even recognize that it's Jesus. And he starts rebuking them for their unbelief in the word of God. And they only realize it's Jesus after they invite him in for supper and he breaks the bread. And Jesus is like saying, is that what it's like when I come to show up to help you guys? You don't even recognize that I'm coming. And I have to like tell you from scripture to believe in the promises of God because I could literally come and stand physically in your presence and you wouldn't even know it's me because you're so discouraged? Is that what I'm going to find? Imagine the conversation they could have had with Jesus if they had recognized him right away. Well, ah, it's you! Okay, we've got seven miles to Emmaus. Maybe we could get some work done. So there are some times in Scripture where Jesus warns us there's ways of making it harder for God to answer our prayers. And I'm not saying this to discourage you. And you know what? God doesn't say this to discourage us. We know from this parable the whole point of our prayer lives is to be always praying and not losing heart. Luke made this really clear. What does God want for your prayer life? That you'd be always praying and not losing heart? Praying as you go? Prayer closet time? Group prayer time? Every kind of prayer? And not losing heart. That's God's will for your life. Do you know what God's will for your life? You go away from this message, you know what's God's will for my life today. To be praying and not losing heart. Praying with faith, believing prayer, not losing heart. But God wants us to know there are things that we can do that makes it harder for him to quickly answer our prayers. And he shares these things with us in love. Not to discourage us, but because he loves us. Right? Isn't somebody who tells you not to hurt your, how to not hurt yourself your friend? Usually. If you go to the auto shop and they're like, okay, I hear you might want to be changing your own oil. Don't just fill it up until it starts running over the top. You'll toast your engine. I tried that once. I toasted my engine. If I was corrected in how not to hurt my car, isn't that a friend who does that? If somebody just leaves you to yourself so that you can mess up your own dang life, aren't they not your friend? And so when you hear these things, you need to hear a friend in God telling you, don't mess up your prayer life by doing this stuff. So let's go to one. We're just talking about from Mark, Jesus saying, you, you, God is so willing to answer your believing prayer. You can be thanking him while you're asking for it, that he's going to answer you. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. But then he says this, and whenever you stand, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your father who, who is in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. I think that's significant. Jesus is just promising almost embarrassingly high levels of answered prayer. And he says, when you come to pray and you're standing asking God for these things, make sure you are, have, are forgiving people so that God can forgive you. And make sure you're not holding a grudge so that God's not holding a grudge against you. So prayer time is one of these times where 
God's a good trainer. And so he says to us, the measure you use will be measured back to you. You treat people the way you want me, you want to be treated. Almost saying, you treat people the way you want me to treat you. And then if we come to prayer and we're asking these huge things, but we won't forgive our brothers or we won't forgive people, we're hearts full of offense, or hearts full of um, um, selfish judgment, God's looking at us going, I want to help, but you're telling me you want me to be full of selfish judgment. You want me to be offended at you. You want me to be unforgiving at you. And so, uh, you've decided this is how this prayer time is going to go. The desire being, why don't you deal with the unforgiveness first, and then we can flow into the believing prayer miracles. Amen? Does that make sense? There are some things that are more important than getting your prayers answered, and forgiveness is one of them. That's what God's letting us know. The only reason we get to pray to God is because God has forgiven us through the Lord Jesus Christ. If we came to God in our, in our sin, in our pride, in our rebellion, our prayers, Proverbs tells us, are like a noxious fume. They're like an abomination. It's like wrapping up a used diaper for somebody, for your wife for Christmas. Can you imagine doing that? Here, honey. All these diapers you've taken off the kids for last month, I've been storing them up. I put them in a bag. I kept them somewhere place warm. Here you go. I love you. How's she going to respond? <laughs> I left it. I put some flies on there. It's crawling with maggots. Ooh, Christmas maggots. How's she going to respond? Okay, hear the word of the Lord. Give God a gift he likes when you go to prayer time. Give him the gift of forgiveness. He's given us the gift of forgiveness. Give it back to him. He's given us the, the, the gift of wanting there to be peace. Let's give it back to him when we go to prayer. That's what he's telling us through this time. What's another passage we could go to? James here. James, good old James, he redefines what a gracious person is like for us. Um, most of us would not choose to have James as our personal pastor. Uh, he, he's pretty, he was like the heart surgeon of, of the apostles. He thought that the most help you could do to people involved a very sharp cutting knife. But this is what he says. What causes quarrels and fights amongst you? Is it not your, your passions which are at war within you? You desire and don't have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you don't ask. You don't, and you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so this is what James is trying to deal with. He he calls them adulterous people. He goes on from there. But this is what, one of the heart things that, that James is trying to deal with in prayer is that there is a way of coming to God and asking him for things just because we don't want God as much. We want him to give us things that will help us not have to love him. We want him to give us things that will help us not have to trust him. We want him to give us things that help us walk away from him. We want him to give us things, I don't you anymore. I can just buy what I need. And, and God sees that kind of functioning in our hearts sometimes. God, would you kill all my enemies? I don't know if that's a great way to spread the gospel. Yes, but if I could just step on the faces of all the people who have ever hurt me and grind it into powder and make them really see and feel all the things they've done to me and just destroy them, that would be wonderful. And God just hearing these prayers and saying, if I answered these prayers, then I would actually be helping you worship Satan, and so I'm not going to do it. And so there is a way in our prayer time, if you're hungry for believing prayer, if you're hungry for enduring prayer, there is a way of being constantly saying, God, 
Help sift through my motives. Holy Spirit, let me know if I'm praying anything that just displeases you to be asking for. Even now as I'm sharing this, you might remember the story of Solomon, King Solomon, who took over for David. And God appeared to Solomon in the night and said, this is your genie moment. You can ask me for anything you want. It's amazing. Imagine God showing up to you and just saying, you don't even have to rub a lamp. I will give you whatever you want. And Solomon says, I need wisdom. Because if you don't make me supernaturally wise, I cannot lead your people well. well. And God says to him, because you didn't ask for money, because you didn't ask for women, because you didn't ask for the death of your enemies, I'm going to give you all the wisdom you could ever handle, and I'm going to bless you with a ton of other stuff afterwards. And we just learn about the heart of God that if our desires are in step with his desires, he actually wants to give us more than what we ask for. But if our desires are skewed into selfish, worldly things, we're just riding the brakes. One more. This is just to even us up because I talked about the Delilah thing. First Peter 3, verse 7. It's a part of the household instructions. Likewise, husband, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to, to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And so, guys, there is this call from Scripture where the Father says to us, make sure you're treating your wives well, so that I'm free to treat you well. But if your wife, when you come to me in prayer, if I'm still in my to-do list, have all the complaints that your wife have brought me in her prayer time, that's what we need to deal with first. Amen? This is one of the things about life. Whenever you're having a problem with someone, you can always go above their head and talk to God about them. If your heart is for peace and reconciliation and for the gospel. But there's just this warning for scripture that Bad husbanding makes it harder for God to answer our prayers. And so it's just it's God loving us to tell us this stuff. And it's good to know this. So when you go to your prayer closet, you should be saying, Hey God, am I doing anything that is going to interrupt great flowing prayer? Is that a fair question? Is that treating God like the divine person he is? Hey, do you have anything against me that's going to make this prayer time ineffective? Would you let me know? I want to repent. I want to get clean. I want to please you. I want to love you. I want to make you happy in my prayer time. I want you to be, not only do I want to be excited coming to you to pray, but I want you to be excited that I'm coming to you to pray. <laughs> you ever think about it like that? Where it's like, man, sometimes my heart's so hard or so, so full of unbelief that God may be saying, oh great, Rob's coming to ask for stuff I can't do for him because he doesn't want to deal with this junk. Like maybe that never happens, but you know, it might. God's, God's not a robot. Or you've asked for 13 minutes of prayer, so I'll do seven minutes of answering them. He's not a robot. He's a living being who loves me. But we all know that if you've got someone coming to you and they're the problem, that wisdom and love helps deal with the problem. And God's like that too. And I, So I want to sort things out with God. I want my prayer times with God to be a time of him softening my heart and being convicted of sin, being convicted of trouble, so that when I come to him with my desires, he's delighted to answer them.
Did anybody have Christmas recently? Any parents in the house? If your kids are like getting along and listening to you and thankful, doesn't it just make it easier to buy them stuff? Is it just me? And if they're a pain in the neck, and if the, the, that stank underwear is still on the floor in their room six weeks later, doesn't it kind of give you mixed feelings when they open up their present? Because you're like, it could have been so much sweeter if, if, if we were flowing better. And I'm not giving you excuses to like give anybody eyeballs. And I am not inviting the ministry of flying elbows during this time. I'm saying, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. Or even what you would have God do unto you is a real thing. And if we want God to be tender-hearted with us in our prayer time, we should foster a tender-heartedness with others. Amen? All right. Do I have another slide? Okay, practical stuff. I'm going to run through this fairly quickly, and my only expectation is that if any of these things jump out to you as things you can do in your life or through these prayer and fasting times, that you'll lay hold of it. I want you to know that this is up to you. Prayer life is something that no one else can do for you. Someone else can pray for you, but no one can pray for you. Just to be confusing. Someone else can lay hands on you and pray for you, but no one else can like make your mouth say heartfelt requests to God. That's on you. That's on you, it's on you, it's on you. And it's always going to be on you, so own that it's on you. Your prayer life is on you. If it's great, it's on you. If it stinks, it's on you. No one can mess up your prayer life. You can pray in your head, okay? So you can't say, somebody stop me from praying. You can literally pray in your head, so it's on you, it's on you, and on you. So let's own our prayer lives, and let's um, be ready to make things better by the power of the Holy Spirit. So number one, you got to make time. we got to make time, and we got to fight the phone. Isn't your phone kind of your biggest enemy to praying some? times. And I thought about this. So about like if you're a phone person, if you're on your phone all the time, how could you manipulate it to make to improve your prayer time? And I thought maybe you should make your own like God prayer Google account like answered prayer 007 at gmail.com. And when you want to pray, why don't you type out a text or an email and send it to that email address as a way of actually helping you pray with your phone? Like, there's always a good idea of how to overcome stuff. And just think about that. Then you'd have this, prayer, this email account somewhere of all the prayer requests you've sent God. So if you're that kind of person who does, like, a lot of texting, a lot of emailing, set up an account for God, <laughs> maybe, and send him your prayers. And look, the God of the Bible, as far as I know, him will honor that. I went through the effort of sending you my prayers, God. And I meant it when I sent it. I think he'll honor that for sure. But we've got to fight the phone. So often our phone is where we go instead of the Lord, one way or another. And so we need to take responsibility for our hearts in that way. Number two, use teamwork. Um, If you're really bad at praying on your own, I like to pray on my own, but if you're bad at it, get a prayer partner. Most people, if you make any intention to get fit or get in shape, you're going to have to like join a club and get other people to do it because there is a bit of momentum of doing things with people. Now, don't wait around for somebody else to initiate prayer partnering or prayer teaming. This is one of the things in church in North America. If the pastor doesn't start it, it doesn't exist. You know what I mean? And we need to fight against that. If you need prayer help, call your buddies. 
hey, for the next month, I want to pray every day. Let's do this. I'm going to phone you. I'm going to text you. Whatever. Take initiative. Fight for prayer. Get a prayer partner. In your house, very often we can feel like the people we live with are one of the main reasons we don't pray. This is what you do. You get all of you on the same page for prayer. You sit down. You ask the kids, okay, what helps you pray? How are you going to help me pray? Get all on the same team. What should we do? Maybe you could even say, you got young kids. Sit them down and say, we're going to... January's about prayer. How should we be praying? And then use their ideas. And one of the things I think adults can always do, used to do, is just remind yourself, little children praying, Jesus is listening. Because sometimes we can grade importance of prayer. And it's like, my prayers are more important than their prayers. It's not true. We get the home mobilized as much as possible. If you think that the people you live with keep you from praying, ask God in the power of the Holy Spirit, get united in helping each other pray. And number C, under two, I really want to encourage people to join in the prayer and fasting thing. We have made up just some simple prayer cards that has a motto for these two weeks, for nothing will be impossible with God. I'm going to show this here. We'll put it on our communication tools. We use WhatsApp and email. And the plan is to get away where you can pick one of these things up physically if you want to do that. But plan to join this prayer and fasting time and be asking that this would be actually a launch for the rest of your year, not something where it's like two weeks, I'm going to hold my breath, suffer through it, and go back to normal. My desire is that this is actually a launch for more and more believing, joyful prayer at Calvary Chapel for the rest of the year because we need it and God knows we need to grow in it. And there's also room on here for you to write down your own prayer requests, but these are the prayer requests that the leadership are asking us all to be joining. joining. There is a word called joining, and I'm trying to access that file. Number one, courageous love flowing from our church so that God would really set us on fire for Christ-like love. Believing prayer revival across our city. I'm sure there's lots of discouraged prayers these days. We're asking the Holy Spirit to pour that out. And also Holy Spirit conviction of our need for Jesus across Canada. I'm asking the Holy Spirit that he would supernaturally be convicting our whole country of the need for Jesus, believer and unbeliever alike. But there's also spots for you to put your own prayers in here. But I really want to encourage us to join with this. Uh, Figure out how you work best. After 18, 19-ish years of marriage, I've realized that Jackie and I are both very different prayers. It's good to acknowledge that. It's good to learn how you work best and work with how you work best. If solo praying is your best thing, make sure you're doing that. If group praying is your best thing, make sure you're doing that. If spontaneous praying is your best thing, make sure you're doing that. But work with how you're wired for prayer. Number four, sorry, use a prayer book. This is one of the things I find really helpful is just to have a book where I write down what I want to pray about. Because I find I'm very scattered when I wake up in the morning for when it's time for prayer. and I can't focus my thoughts. So I just write down things that um, I want to be constantly praying about and then i'll just open it up whatever page i want i'll go to it and if it riffs and inspires something hey it's better to get started here um doing it this way than missing out on something else but do what works for you and finally don't listen to discouraging thoughts of prayer failure that would be disobedient to jesus's parable of the persistent widow all right thanks everybody i'm gonna invite the team to come back up But I want to encourage you as a church, um, don't believe the discouragement anymore. You know that the will of Christ, your leader, your savior, the one who gives you the Holy Spirit, his will is that you ought always to be praying and never losing heart and not to condemn you and not to say you're not measuring up, but to give you a vision and a goal and an ideal to 
continue to ask God to make alive in your life through grace and through faith. And let's lay hold of January for this in a specific and powerful way. My expectation is that we would not be the same church come February 1, whatever God plans to do with it. And so I'm going to pray for this for us. Father, thank you so much for this gift of prayer that the God of heaven opens up his ears and opens up his office and opens up his workshop to us, that we can come to heaven anytime we want to through prayer and that we can find a joyful, generous Father there through Jesus Christ. Thank you so much. Father, you know this is an area of spiritual warfare. The enemy wants us discouraged and the, area, the enemy wants us unbelieving and the area enemy wants us whining and the enemy wants us to be stuck having to deal with junk instead of extending the kingdom through faith so lord would you liberate us as a church and father i thank you that the best part of prayer is being with you in it and i pray that our hearts would be joyfully satisfied as we fellowship with you through the holy spirit in prayer in jesus mighty name amen